Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1942, the state of California was in panic, as rumors of an oncoming Japanese attack swelled to epic proportions. That February, a Japanese submarine bombarded an oil refinery near Santa Barbara, beginning an irrational spring and summer of paranoia and fear. Over the next six months, the Japanese would strike California, Oregon, and British Columbia three more times, bringing World War II closer to home than ever before. Amidst the confusion, the city of Los Angeles opened fire on an unknown object for an entire night, only to discover that it was actually nothing at all. Still called the Battle of Los Angeles, this event has been a hotbed for conspiracy and sensationalism ever since. On this episode, we discuss the West Coast Invasion Scare. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Here we are now, unbelievably, at our 70th episode of Wartime. And before we jump into the episode, just let me say that when I started this podcast, I didn't know what it would be. I was just a boy with a microphone. But here we are, 70 hours later. 70 hours of me uh, talking to myself uh, in studio, and hopefully 70 hours later of you listening. So thank you so much for this wartime, listeners. It's been my pleasure. Hopefully, uh, we have many more to come. For those of you who are on the East Coast, maybe those of you that aren't, again, we do have some events coming up that are worth your note. If you live in or near Pennsylvania on February 20th, I'll be at the Jennings Environmental Center near Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, be signing copies of my books and giving a brief lecture, February 20th, Saturday morning. If you're uh, in North Carolina, I'll be appearing at the Guilford Courthouse National Battlefield, Tuesday, March 8th, uh, giving the feature lecture that night in celebration of the battle. Again, lecturing and signing copies of all of my books. So hopefully we'll see you there. Mention wartime, uh, so I know you're out there. But now to today's episode. Unbelievably, we are about to discuss our third World War II topic in Season 5 of Wartime. If I keep this up, I may have to change this to the History Channel podcast. There's nothing wrong with studying World War II. I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. I think it's a big war that has a lot more imperial implications than we tend to think about. Uh... But I promise you, this is my last one. Uh, it's one I have to talk about, though. We're going to talk about an event tonight 
uh, that is long heralded in American popular culture uh, that many conspiracy theorists grasp onto, but I think is important we explore as historians will, putting it in context, making sense of it. I'm talking about the Battle of Los Angeles. Now, the Battle of Los Angeles, if you talk to certain people, again, probably from the History Channel, has a lot to do with aliens and UFOs and very little to do with actual history. But the reality is, in context, I think we can sufficiently say that extraterrestrials had very little to do with this. Again, this is uh, an opportunity for us to really turn over some new soil, an opportunity to right a lot of wrongs. Because if you search for a podcast on the Battle of Los Angeles or the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, you're very likely not going to find much about history. You're going to find a lot of speculation by a lot of people who do not pay attention to the larger circumstances around this event. But I think it's an important one, and one that lets us talk about uh, the real fear that surrounds a Japanese attack on the American mainland in 1942. So, without further ado, let's set the stage. Pearl Harbor occurs in December of 1941 and Pearl Harbor to the average American is the ultimate low blow the ultimate shot in the back uh, the ultimate act of cowardice the Japanese made a preemptive strike on the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii and the devastation the damage again we talked about it previously uh, is uh, almost unthinkable for America in 1941 America had the gift of having two oceans on either side of her shores, and for most of American history, they were defenders. But as FDR will say, as the war goes on, those oceans which protected us for so long are now becoming battlefields. World War II brings the terrible reality of modern warfare in the 20th century, and it will be the defining moment of the 20th century. But I want to get back to that time period immediately after, and I'm talking weeks after, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Because for us moderns, looking back, World War II is a, a century ago. Uh, we can kind of make it simple. We can kind of take the humanity out of the story. But when you do that, you miss a lot. A lot of the fear and a lot of the uncertainty and a lot of the very real human emotions that lead to decision-making at the time. They didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow any more than you do. You hope you do. You hope you wake up and your life is another boring day. With a great podcast, by the way. But we don't know. And they didn't know either. So we can explore that fear and explore that uncertainty and maybe explore that paranoia. But just remember, as they say very famously, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that someone's not out to get you. In the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, there was a very real fear that the Japanese would strike again, probably in Hawaii, but maybe even on the American mainland. That sounds laughable to us today, but only until I tell you that the Japanese would actually strike three different times on the American mainland in the two in the year after Pearl Harbor. That's what we're going to talk about today. After Pearl Harbor, 
the American military beefs up security on Hawaii itself. Uh, they send soldiers, they send troops, armed security, artillery. The Japanese would be crazy to attack Pearl Harbor again. It's what made Midway, 1,300 miles away, an attractive target. But what we also don't understand enough is just how close the Japanese were to the American mainland in the uh, weeks that followed Pearl Harbor, January and February of 1942. In February of 1942, think of this. We know by looking at Japanese records that there were at least seven Japanese submarines patrolling off our west coast, off the coast of California and Oregon and British Columbia. Seven. All of them were armed. All of them could have done extensive damage. As we'll talk about today, the damage that they did do was fairly minimal, but they were much closer than anyone would have been comfortable with. And again, there was such a real fear that the West Coast would be compromised by the Japanese submarines lurking in the distance. Imagine what people would have done if they actually knew that there was a clear and present danger. So let's talk about the first of the four events uh, we'll discuss tonight. The first event we'll talk about is an event that happens near Santa Barbara, California, uh, at a place called Elwood. And this will begin what we call, and I think it, it, that is very fascinating, the West Coast Invasion Scare. I want you to remember that, because very few people even know that actually happened. One thing I want to get across about this is the idea of a foreigner, an alien, I said the word, uh, not a space alien, not welcome to Earth kind of alien, but a foreigner, and just how connected the world economy was in the years leading up to World War II. I mean, as Americans and, and Brits, I think we have a good sense of what World War II is. Average men giving up their day jobs, picking up a rifle, jumping into an airplane or on a ship, winning the war. But we don't think enough about the Japanese side, because it was very much like that for them too. We talk about the Japanese like a monolith, like this enormous military that always existed and was being ready to be unleashed uh, on the Western world. But the reality was, most or all of the soldiers we're going to talk about tonight and sailors uh, had jobs before this. And when their country called, they, uh, they sacrificed as well. One of the people I think it's very important for tonight's episode that we can talk about is the Japanese commander Kozo Nishino. Nishino is a man who spent his career as the captain of a merchant vessel. Not a naval vessel, but a merchant vessel. And he sailed all over the Pacific Ocean, including California. As a merchant captain, Nishino would need to know where to deliver his goods, but more importantly, the logistics, where to refuel. One of the places Nishino refueled, one of the places he knew about, was an oil field in Elwood, California, right near Santa Barbara. It's in the Santa Barbara Channel. It's in Southern California. It was a place that served a very important practical military purpose. There was petroleum. There was oil. There was gasoline. It was an attractive target. So it should be no surprise that when Captain Nishino uh, begins to move toward 
the American West Coast as one of those seven Japanese submarines in the area. This particular Japanese submarine is called I-17, 365 feet long, six 20-inch torpedo tubes, 17 torpedoes in total. This ship, this submarine, lurked beneath the waves, unseen to the naked eye. And again, the sense that it's alien or foreign doesn't necessarily compute when you consider that the commander of that submarine, I-17, Kozo Nishino, had been to this Elwood refueling station before. He knew the importance of it. He knew the proximity of it. And he knew that it would make an attractive target. At about 7 p.m., on February 23, 1942, just a little more than two months after Pearl Harbor, Nishino would guide the I-17 submarine to within 300 meters of the place he had visited before, this Elwood refueling station in Southern California. At about 7.15, Nishino orders his men to fire. Now, what Nishino doesn't know, and which is fortunate for the people of Southern California, is that by that point, it's dark. Most of the men who made their livings at the Elwood fuel station were gone. They were uh, home for the night. There were some people there. And when the first round hits, many of those workers, again, have no idea that they're about to be attacked by the Japanese. It would be one of their worst fears, but they didn't know. They believed that there was some type of explosion or industrial accident on the site. That idea was very quickly put to bed, however, when they looked off into the night sky and they saw the searchlight of the I-17. Many feared it was a destroyer. Some feared it was an aircraft carrier. They didn't know it was a submarine, and again, there is no visibility at that point. What gave it away that it was not the threat they thought was that as they watched the gun repeatedly fire was that there was only one of them. So they knew it had to be a smaller vessel. They figured it was probably a submarine. The original target of Nishino in the I-17 submarine was an enormous fuel tank just beyond the beach, just beyond the coastline. He did not hit it. But it made sense why that would be a primary target. The men who were on the ground, who were being shelled, immediately called the police. But we know response time is limited at best. Nishino continued firing on the site. By all accounts, this attack was flawed to say the least. Some of the most damage came from the fact that the Japanese overshot the Elwood oil facility and hit a nearby ranch. And when this happens, you can understand Again, when you're paranoid, when you're living in fear, that the worst seems to be happening. The owner of that ranch, which had an inn, a hotel, so to speak, on it, called the police and said, warplanes are coming. I mean, this seemed like the big one. In reality, it was a fairly minor attack that lasted 20 minutes without any real damage. A shell did hit the Elwood Pier. People would go out on there with their families. Again, luckily no one was there and damage it but not beyond the point where it couldn't be repaired. And the total amount of damage done to the Elwood site was one oil derrick and one pump house. No people died. That was a close call. But again, 
when you are uh, when you're living in that fear, when you're living in that moment, and you know what just happened to Pearl Harbor just weeks ago, you can understand why these people or how these people would be so terrified. I mean, you're talking about a Japanese attack on the American mainland. And I know when, when you learn World War II uh, in a very quick way, whether it be in high school or in a college survey class, these are the kind of small, peculiar events you don't necessarily have a lot of time to delve into. So for many of us, this may be the first time we've ever heard of it. As we'll see shortly, that's probably true for most people who talk about the event that follows. There's a lot we know about this attack. There's also a lot we don't know. We don't know exactly how many shots were fired at the Elwood Oil Facility. Some people say at least 12, based on eyewitnesses. A reverend in Montecito watched the whole thing. He also watched that same submarine that attack turn south and head toward Los Angeles. Some say as many as 25 shots came. Again, these are five and a half inch rounds. Damage is minimal. Loss of life is non-existent. But think about that. I mean, what, what is this like? I think about what this could be like and whether I blame people's reaction for what happens next. To me, the best analogy I can come up with, and by the way, this will be the only time I use this word in this podcast, uh, is if uh, somebody believed they lived in a haunted house for 40 years. They were convinced, even though they never saw anything, and everyone made fun of them. And then one night, they actually see a ghost. I mean, that's the only thing you can really boil this down to. It's a traumatic event. And again, it begins an irrational, uh, but I think very understandable wave of panic that sweeps through Southern California that we call the West Coast Invasion Scare. It's no longer a question of if the Japanese can strike America's west coast. It's a question of when. News agencies grab a hold of this. They run wild with it. You can imagine how the news media would treat this. People think the news media being overblown and dramatic uh, is something new. It's always been that way. That's how you sell copies and stay in business. They ran with this in a very big way. Before this happened, many Japanese Americans feared they would be blamed in some kind of repercussion for Pearl Harbor. They were right. After this attack on the Elwood facility, the notion of Japanese internment really starts to pick up steam. And it should also be said, it was no small accident that at the exact same time this was going on, FDR was giving one of his very famous fireside chats, talking about the fact that uh, the, the seas are a battlefield and that the Japanese can attack us. We don't know if it was timed necessarily, but it did start within five minutes of that speech. So I think that really says something. But the really interesting stuff, I think, is what comes next. That's February 23rd, 1942. What happens the very next day? The very next day, panic has struck Southern California 
and really the entire West Coast. I mean, people in New York know about this immediately. But there are people fleeing for their lives in California and on the West Coast. They're living on edge. Not only did this attack happen, but many people have heard that that ship was headed toward Los Angeles. Strange lights in the water, that could be anything, even small fishing boats, are now a Japanese submarine. I mean, you get this. You see how this works. We know in reality, Nishino took that submarine back to the safety of the Japanese fleet. He was done, for all intents and purposes, with the West Coast. He tried something and it failed. But the rumors continue. That's when the real, I think, power of groupthink and fear, fear for your families, fear for your lives, fear for your job and what you know, really lose sight of things. They really spin out of control. That's February 23rd. Let's talk about the evening, the next night of February 24th, 1942. On the evening of February 24th, a total blackout is ordered, and air raid sirens go off all throughout Los Angeles. If you are a person listening to the radio, sitting with your family in the middle of the night, and you hear air raid sirens just a little more than 24 hours after the event we just talked about, you're going to fear the worst. What was happening? Strange lights had appeared in the sky. Some say airplanes had appeared in the sky. Something was in the sky. We know today it was most likely a weather balloon launched a little bit further south down the shoreline that was just used for basic scientific survey. But at night, you can't necessarily know that. Something is up there. Something is on radar. The American military on the West Coast in Los Angeles is already on guard. And they decide that whatever is up there will need to be taken out. At 3.16 a.m., the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade begins firing. And not just firing anything at this mysterious object in the sky, but a 50 caliber machine gun. Accompanying that, anti-aircraft shells shooting at some strange object in the air. Now again, if you live in Los Angeles, that's a very frightening ordeal. By the end of the night, 3.16 a.m. into the next morning, 1,400 shells will be launched. And by the way, some of them will be raining down on the people of Los Angeles. Pilots of the 4th Interceptor Command are alerted. They never take off. And it's not until 7.21 a.m. the next morning, when the all-clear is sounded. For people in Los Angeles that night, bombs literally bursting in the air. This is the moment they've all feared. This is the big Japanese invasion. So what was it? Well, we think it was a weather balloon. But that's really immaterial. What it is doesn't matter. It could have been a pelican, for all we know. What's important is what people thought it was. They thought... It was the great Japanese invasion. Throughout the night, bombs are bursting in the air. Bullets are going off. And whenever people see some of these explosions in the air, they think 
in the distance, because you can see it for miles. This must be an, an air battle. This must be a real air raid. And we've seen air raids, not in America, but you've certainly seen them in Britain. And people who have ever seen a British air raid know the terror and the horror that's involved in that. So what in the world happened in Los Angeles? Well, there is an aftermath. Several buildings are damaged. Cars are damaged. Not by any attack from a foreign enemy, but by the very shells the Americans were shooting in the air. Raining down on them. This becomes front page news. And again, it's a very good indicator of what it could have been, rather than what it was. The media completely runs away with the story. The media talks about mysterious uh, lights in the sky. They talk about uh, squadrons of Japanese airplanes. None of it happened. All of it's to sell newspapers, but these people were already on edge. And the entire city of Los Angeles was lit up, basically shooting at nothing. And there's pictures of this. I'll put maps of all this, by the way, on the Facebook page, on the Twitter the Battle of Los Angeles has just commenced. And believe it or not, five people actually died. Two of them from stress-related heart attacks. No one was hit by any falling debris. There were car accidents that claimed the other three lives. Seems like the end of the world, though. Again, it seems silly to just unload your entire arsenal at the drop of the hat at nothing in the middle of the night. But these people were genuinely scared. So the event we call the Battle of Los Angeles was really nothing more than all of that anxiety, not just amongst the average citizen, but amongst the military as well, boiling over. The Secretary of the Navy at the time, a man named Frank Knox, will give a press conference. And he refers to the event as a false alarm. He calls it war nerves. He says there's nothing to fear now. And last night was not a Japanese attack. But I think the damage is done. I think the damage is done. Now the people of Los Angeles, if you go to the area where they fire these rounds from, uh, they do make light of it. They do celebrate the event every year. You can see the guns they used. You can see the turrets they shot them from. It's a major event. It's a part of World War II. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily a battle. Not like what happened at Elwood the previous evening press will run with it, of course. Thousands of people flee California seeking some kind of safety. And the American government does everything it can to minimize the threat. But here's the thing. And this is what's really important for us to understand. This isn't over yet. Not in the slightest. The Japanese weren't there that night. At least we don't think so. Maybe they were in the area. Maybe they were going to plan something. And maybe they saw this, you know, just complete annihilation of this weather balloon and turned back. I like to think so. But they're still around. I mean, our west coast was still being patrolled by Japanese submarines in the days immediately before that. We know that. And the months after. Because there will be another attack on American soil. And this one is not made up. This one is very real. The amount of control that the submarine commanders of the Japanese Navy had, I think, was pretty vast. I think they were given orders that basically said, strike when it suits you, do whatever damage you can. 
Because the decision that they make, and they will strike the American soil two more times, is far from realistic and practical. Um, what they're hoping to achieve, I really don't even think is that impressive. Uh, but it will come again. This time we're going to fast forward four months later. After the great Los Angeles air raid, the Battle of Los Angeles, the battle that really didn't happen. And we're going to go a little further north up the coast to Oregon, to a place called Fort Stevens. There is a Japanese submarine in the water patrolling the coast off of Oregon. Fort Stevens sits right where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Fort Stevens is old. By this point, Fort Stevens was built in the late 19th century. It's seen better days, but it has valiantly guarded the mouth of the Columbia River for decades. The Japanese ship nearby, hidden under the waves, is called the I-25, under the command of Tagami Meiji. Tagami Meiji has limited firepower, a 14-centimeter deck gun, but he's also transporting with him a seaplane, not a big one, but one that is small enough it can use the, the uh, deck of the submarine as transportation, and it can take off for short-range uh, action nearby. On June 21st, 1942, the I-25 is off the Oregon coast, typically following, believe it or not, American fishing boats, because the fishermen know where the undersea mines are. The Japanese don't. They figure out very early, follow the commerce, follow the fishermen. They're not going to go into a minefield, and you'll be just fine. That night, Tagami Meiji finally surfaces a submarine just off the coast of Oregon, just where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean, and there sits Fort Stevens, dilapidated old Fort Stevens, probably past its prime by at least 30 years, and past its usefulness as well. Facing down finally for the first time with an enemy. Fort Stevens has 12-inch guns, mortars, but really nothing effective against an enemy like the I-25 that you can't see. Meiji orders his deck gun to open fire on Fort Stevens. The battery of the attack is codenamed Russell. The shots are completely off the mark. And really, basically harmless. And to his credit, the commander of Fort Stevens tells his men, do not fire back. Because it's night, they can't see you. They turn out all the lights. And they let Meiji and his Japanese submarine just shoot blindly uh, into the Oregon countryside. There isn't much damage done. Most of the rounds completely missed Fort Stevens and ended up hitting a baseball field. Nobody was on it, middle of the night. And a lot went harmlessly into a swamp. Some of them did go into a nearby pillbox at Fort Stevens. But the damage, again, was minimal. Fortunately for the men of Fort Stevens, there were American aircraft in the area on training missions. They were called in. The I-25 was spotted. Tagami Meiji took the vessel back underwater and it disappears yet again. Again, now you are seven months removed from Pearl Harbor. 
you're only four months removed from the attack at Elwood and the great Los Angeles air raid or the Battle of Los Angeles. It's no longer a rumor or a, a fear that the Japanese can attack the American coast. They've shown it. They've done it. And again, the ultimate result of this will be the internment of Japanese Americans and Korean Americans and some Chinese Americans. Anyone who looks Asian will be put into camps as a result of this. Fort Stevens is a unique moment, certainly for Oregon, but really for all of the continental United States because it's the only time that the Axis powers actually attacked a military installation in the continental U.S. during World War II. It was a limited engagement, but it absolutely, positively happened. And Tagami Meiji is not done yet. We're going to see him again in September of 1942. He'll be back. His target is still Oregon. And you wonder why, right? Maybe he knew about uh, all of the hipsters in Oregon. Maybe he knew that uh, men put their hair in buns in Oregon. Maybe he knew about uh, uh, beard nets and skinny jeans. I can't blame him for that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, uh, not really. Uh, but at any rate, um, you can't. You have to understand the thinking here. Again, there's a lot of autonomy for these Japanese commanders. And we've seen them already attack the U.S. coast twice. If they were more prepared, if they were more organized, maybe they could have done far more damage. But they're not finished yet. And I wish I could tell you this has some big blustery conclusion. It doesn't. We'll go to September 9th of 1942. The I-25 is back. Tagami Meiji is still the commander of the vessel. And Oregon is still his primary target. And he looks at Oregon, again from afar, and he develops a plan, and it's a unique one. The plan is, it's no use attacking the military defenses. They don't serve a lot of purpose. And last time they did it, it was ineffective, to say the least. But they say, what if there's some other kind of damage that can be done? Maybe a method that would help Mother Nature uh, do the majority of the, of the destruction. And the Japanese could spur it along. What am I talking about? They believe, what if they can drop? They ask themselves, what if they could drop incendiary bombs in the forests of Oregon? That's a lot of forest. And let a massive and enormous wildfire take care of the rest. Now at the time, what they didn't know was that the weather and conditions in Oregon were not conducive to that. The fire could be contained and put out pretty easily. But, when you think about it, that's really not a terrible idea. I mean, look at how much havoc forest fires and brush fires have wreaked in California in the last five years. I mean, it's a constant battle. So, I mean, we can't really debate the motivation, the effect, that could have worked, but it was the wrong place, and it was the wrong time. The target the Japanese had for this attack, the target that Meiji had for this attack, was a national park. And national parks are funny things, because they have 
staff members who live there. Uh, in this case, the Siskiyou National Park, its prominent feature, Mount Emily, had a man on duty that was on what they called fire lookout in the event of this happening. How did the Japanese deliver these bombs? This man, believe it or not, uh, should go down in American history as a hero for what he does. This ranger who was on duty. But here's what we have. Remember I told you the I-25 had with it a float plane. This is a plane that could be carried by the sub and that could take off without a runway from the sea. Not a big plane, but enough to carry two incendiary bombs. Lieutenant Commander Meiji gives the, gives the order right off of what's today called Cape Blanco. The float plane was a Yokosuka E-14Y. Flying it were Warrant Officer Nobuo Fujita and Petty Officer Okuda Shoji. And these men left with two 76-kilogram bombs. These bombs were meant to start a fire and spread the fire. The man who's on duty in the Siskiyou National Forest uh, is named Howard Gardner. They called him Raz Gardner. And his job was to look out for forest fires. And he saw this strange small plane off on the horizon. And he saw it drop the bombs and he saw them explode. Now, nobody's nearby. There's no people. But there was smoke, which obviously meant there is fire. That plane will turn around and go back to the safety of the I-25 submarine. Raz will go to the scene to try and suppress the fire throughout the night until more help could come. He'll be joined by another fire lookout, Keith Johnson. And these two men will basically keep the very large fires under control in the National Forest until help can come the next day. Authorities will arrive. They knew exactly what it was, a Japanese attack. And Raz Gardner will say he saw two bombs dropped. Authorities will immediately find the first bomb, but they've never found the second. The first bomb left a crater that was a foot deep. But that is a substantial attack uh, when you consider exactly how the Japanese attacked us and when. Now you can go to this site today. It's marked. There's a festival for it every year. Uh, and believe it or not, one of those pilots, Nobuo Fujita, was actually invited for the 20th anniversary of the attack. The people of Oregon welcomed him. Uh, the Japanese government made sure everything was clear. He wouldn't be arrested as a war criminal when he first arrived. And as a show of good faith, Fujita gave a 400-year-old samurai sword uh, to the citizens of Oregon to show that he was, I guess, reconciled for what he did. But that is, I think, significant. Now let's talk about this Battle of Los Angeles. I just gave you a 45-minute podcast, an entire episode, about the West Coast invasion scare. 1942, about a series of events that occurred that clearly showed the Japanese submarines were in the water and clearly showed they were trying to attack the American West Coast. Not effectively, but they were. And yet, whenever people look at this Battle of Los Angeles, this great Los Angeles air raid, they just can't accept that it was an irrational response to a very, I think, real fear. So they have to make it something else. So they make it about space aliens. They make it about a UFO. 
they look at pictures and images of bombs exploding, and they say there is clearly something in the sky in Los Angeles. The government's not telling us what it was. So it's got to be a UFO. Like, if that event happened in a vacuum, and the sky just lit up with artillery, you'd have maybe some standing. Uh, but the fact that there was an attack literally the day before, a real attack, um, kind of makes that argument a moot point. And anytime I see a discussion of the Los Angeles air raid being uh, about government cover-ups and secrecy and extraterrestrials, you never hear, you never hear about the events immediately before and after that we talked about tonight. Now, I will say, I am not so arrogant as to believe that we are alone in this universe. We can't be. I'm a Star Wars fan. I know there's billions of planets, and hopefully... Uh, billions and billions of people on them. Um, but I can tell you this event had nothing to do with that. So I'm not saying you're crazy for believing in aliens. I believe they're out there. Uh, I think every every astrophysicist in his right mind would agree, just looking at the sheer probability of it all. Uh, but this wasn't it. This wasn't it. So I think that's something you know I'd like to do on this season. Yeah, we could talk about the easy battles. Um, the ones that everybody talks about, uh, you know, Gettysburg or something, uh, or we could use this podcast to really kind of explore some of the lesser known, but still very important battles. And I promise you, this is the end of our discussion of World War II. But it's an important one, and I think it's kind of a cool one, and I think it's kind of a nice change of pace. I've been getting a lot of great emails. The Facebook page is blowing up. The Twitter is blowing up. I'm getting lots of requests. Get yours in. We'll try to get it on the air. The next few weeks are going to be all requests. So I'm excited about that. But hey, that's what we're here for. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Wartime.